Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, so if you have your Bibles, and if you don't, there should be a black hardback Bible there in the pew near you in ESV. I want you to take that and I want you to open to the very front where the table of contents is because you're going to need it and find the book of Habakkuk. Okay, so uh, don't, don't feel bad if you don't know where it is. It's, it's a minor prophet and it's only three chapters long, so it's easy to overlook. Uh, but Habakkuk is where we're, we're going to be for the next few weeks. And Habakkuk is a, is a prophet in the southern kingdom and uh, the time of uh, Israel and Judah is split. And, um, and he is, he's in a frustrating time. And so we're calling this series uh, Faith in Frustration. So what frustrates you? That would be a good question. Uh, you know, there's a couple of things that I know that frustrate a lot of us. Uh, the lack of cell service or internet, that's pretty frustrating, am I right? Uh, when, when, that, when that goes down, it's, it's almost like we don't even know how to, how to respond anymore. If there's no internet, well, what do we do? We can't Google it. I, I don't know the answers, you know, and we, we kind of just struggle with that. Uh, maybe it's, maybe it's uh, when you text someone and you're waiting on the reply and you see the little bubbles for just a moment and then they go away and then they, they don't reply. You know, that's really frustrating uh, for a lot of us. Uh, maybe, maybe for some of us, it's showing up for your doctor's appointment on time and then still having to wait another 30 minutes or having to fill out more paperwork that you filled out last time. That's really frustrating. Uh, and, and then there's some of us that I've heard. I've heard you're really frustrated at the fact that it's October and it's still been in the 90s. And uh, it's hard to enjoy pumpkin spice in the 90s. And uh, I've heard the frustrations that many of you have with that. Uh, but, but Habakkuk, he's facing a different kind of frustration. He, he's facing a frustration that makes him want to call out and question God. Are there certain questions that we have in faith that... that are frustrating. I mean, a lot of people, they don't come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because of this question right here. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? How can a good, holy, and loving God allow evil and suffering? I mean, when you really think about that for just a moment, and you think about the things that people are going through, and, and, we're, and we're struggling with that, it's easy to become frustrated. We begin to ask questions. Why does God allow bad things to happen? Why does... Why does God allow good people to suffer and bad people to prosper? That doesn't seem fair. Why is there famine in the world? Why are people going hungry? Why are there children dying of preventable diseases? Why is there sex trafficking? Why is there senseless murders? Why is there cancer? Why is there divorce? Why are there natural disasters that seem to wipe complete villages off the planet? Why? Why and how can a good and holy and loving God allow evil and suffering? Habakkuk, is a, he's at a point where he's seeing evil. He's seeing suffering, and he's asking these difficult questions. What about the question of, what about those who never hear of Jesus? How can a loving God send someone to hell? I remember when I was 18 years old, 18 or 19 years old, having a phone call with my dad, and we were discussing the fact that um, I was trying to share my faith with him at, the, at that point. And we were talking about my uncle who died at a young age for um, being a drunk driver. And I remember that very question coming out of my dad's mouth. How can a loving God send someone to hell? 
These are difficult questions that we all wrestle with. And, and we wrestle with these, and, and we wonder, how, how can a God of love do such a thing? C.S. Lewis had this quote in Mere Christianity. If you're worried about people outside of Christianity, the most unreasonable thing you can do is remain outside of Christianity yourself. If you're really concerned about the salvation of those who have never heard Jesus, then why would you distance yourself from those who do know Jesus? Why would you, why would you decide to leave the church? Why wouldn't you participate more often with those who love Jesus? And then, possibly, join with them in an effort to reach those who are lost. You see, we have a culture that defines a loving God as, as a God or, that will comply this non-confrontational being who tolerates sin and basically anything we want to do. We live in a culture that says that God's a loving God and he will put up with whatever because he's a loving God. The better question is, if God is love, then why do some people go to hell? If God really is a loving God who is the definition of love, then why are there people who would stiff-arm him? And hold them at a distance. You see, we have a lot of questions. And I'm not going to tell you that we're going to get a lot of answers as we go through the book of Habakkuk. In fact, you're going to see that, that God does answer the prophet. And when he answers the prophet, it doesn't really sound like good news. But he does answer them. And it's about his faith in the frustrating times that holds him to God. You see, a right faith doesn't erase our deepest questions, but it does anchor us when we ask them. We're not always going to know what God's up to. When we see disease and when we see pain and we see suffering and we see hurt and we ask God why, it doesn't erase the question. And likewise, a right faith doesn't answer our deepest questions, but does anchor us when we ask them. It doesn't erase them, and it doesn't always answer them. So let's get to Habakkuk chapter 1. Let me give you a little bit of a background here. Habakkuk likely, likely is prophesying during King Jehoiakim's reign. It was basically went like this. You had good king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, good king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king. Right, you follow me? So there's a lot of good kings, bad kings, bad kings, good kings, good kings, bad kings. That's, that's kind of the history there that's going on. And so uh, he's likely prophesying during Jehoiakim's reign, and that was a bad king. And, uh, but how did he get here? 2 Chronicles 33, 21 through 23, King Amon was uh, a king at that time of the southern kingdom. And when he was 22 years old, he became the king and he reigned Jerusalem for two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. Amon worshipped and offered sacrifices to all the idols Manasseh had, done, had made. But unlike his father Manasseh, he did not humble himself before the Lord. Amon increased in his guilt. And so Amon, he's, he's increasing the guilt of the nation. He's raising up all these, uh, these idols to worship. And then you get to 2 Chronicles 34. There's a king by the name of Josiah. Maybe you've heard of him. And it says this, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Let me just stop right there. Is there an eight-year-old in, the, in, in here t- today? Anyone eight? Yes. Come here. Come here. Come on. Now, I just want you to get this visual. Come on up here, buddy. Yes. 
We need like trumpets blowing as you're coming up, like you're the king. Now, you want to tell everybody your name? Ian. Ian. And how old are you? Uh, eight years old. Okay. And do you want to be king? No. No? <laughs> now, can you imagine Ian being the king of your nation at eight years old? You see that? Look at that. They are, they are stunned. They are stunned in your very presence this morning. Good job, buddy. You did good. You want to go back? All right, go color. Go color. Okay. Give him a hand. Now, I want you to think about this. An eight-year-old king, right? And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year, so how old would he be? 16. Any 16-year-olds in here? Oh, Eli, come on up, buddy. (laughs) Now, look at this fine, strapping young man. Would anybody like for this to be king? (laughs) Okay, you can go sit down. All right. (laughs) Give my head. Good job, Eli. All right. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, yes, you're still young, no matter what you think, at age 16, he began to seek the God of his father, David. And in his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah. Twelve years. Anybody can do the math there? Twenty. Okay. Any twenty-year... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, We won't bring up a twenty-year-old. You're getting old enough that you could probably beat me up, so like, we won't do that. Um... In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high and high places, Asherah poles and idols. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles and the idols. So you had this young king, eight years old. He comes into power. By the time he's 16, he begins to really follow the Lord. And by the time he's 20, he is beginning to rid all of his kingdom of these idols and these temples and things of of false worship. Now, let me just tell you right there, young people, at a young age, you can have a major impact for God. At a very young age, you can lead people by showing your devotion to God. Even at a young age, even when you're eight years old, right, Ian? Right. Okay, so let's keep going. In the 18th year, anybody do the math? <laughs> 26. Um, you are getting, getting less uh, confident in your math skills. Uh, in the 18th year of Josiah's reign, to purify the land of the temple, he sent Saphan, uh, son of Azaliah and Maniah. <laughs> yeah, these are fun, aren't they? Messiah, the ruler of the city, to Joah, son of Joaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. So basically, the temple that Solomon built is in ruins. It's, it's been dilapidated. He goes in. He says, look, let's start cleaning this thing out. And while they're in there, they find a scroll of Moses. While they're in there, all of this time, there's been no word of the Lord. They find it, they bring it out, and they read it. And it says there in verse 19, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He sent a nation into revival. It had been wicked king and evil king and bad king and good king. And now there's this really good king. And he's like, look, we're coming back to the Lord. We're coming back to the Lord. And we're going to put God's word first. But after a while, 
there was a war. There was a battle. And King Josiah, he dressed up like a foot soldier, and he went into war with his men. And he fell uh, in battle by an arrow. Then entered King Jehoaz. He takes over for three months. Then he goes to his brother, King Jehoiakim. And for the next 11 years, he would lead Judah straight into their destruction, back into idolatry, wickedness, and evil. In his, reign, you, uh, you, in his reign, you see the rise of power and oppression of a man named King Nebuchadnezzar. So that gives you a background of Habakkuk. Let me pray, and we'll read the first 11 verses. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, even though it was written long ago, there's so many things that it can teach us about you. And God, we have so many questions that go unanswered. We have so many times of frustration. We wonder where you are. Father, I pray that right now that you would hear the cries of your people, that you would answer them by the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen. Habakkuk chapter 1, 1 through 11. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, and justice goes forth perverted. Let me stop right there. So you take the context here. He's, he's seen a nation that experienced revival, a, a nation that put forth God's word, and now he's seeing all of these things just being corrupted and perverted. Let's keep reading verse 5. The Lord's answer. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce then evening wolves, their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is God's word. So what we have here is we have Habakkuk who's crying out to God because he sees the wickedness and the oppression and the iniquity of his people. And he's saying, how long, God? How long before you do something? I need you to step in here. And then God answers. So when we are frustrated in our faith, cry out to God with your frustration. I want you to understand something it is okay to be frustrated in your faith. It is okay to question. It is okay to cry out to God, to ask why, to ask how long, what is going on. I need to hear from you. And he welcomes the cries of his people. 
He wants to hear you crying out to him. And, and let me be honest with you. A lot of times we don't say things because we're afraid, oh, God can't know that. But guess what? He already knows what's in your heart. Am I right? He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows the frustration that you're finding. We see this all throughout Scripture. Psalm 10, 1 says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalms 13, 1 and 2, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Have you ever been there in your prayers where you're asking, why? How long? Why am I feeling so persecuted, so oppressed, so weak? Why is there suffering? I want you to understand something. God welcomes the cries and the questions of those who seek him with sincere hearts. But we must avoid developing a cynical heart in our frustration. There's a difference between a sincere heart and a cynical heart. A cynical heart towards God develops when an individual carries an emotional disposition of distrust or rejection towards God as a result of the negative experiences they have experienced either directly or indirectly. Basically, at some point, if you've received such a, a difficult life and you feel like God's not answered your questions and you're asked why, 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 if you become cynical towards God, it means that you're just kind of like, well, I don't trust him anymore. He's obviously not out for my good. You see, there's a sincere heart and then there's a cynical heart that asks questions. What are signs of a cynical heart? A heart that grows apathetic towards God. A cynical heart is a heart that grows apathetic towards God. Apathy towards God, this person becomes unmoved by the things of God. They become unemotional as they sit and they hear God's word. They view faith and the practice of faith as meaningless. They become apathetic. A critical heart. A cynical heart is one that grows critical towards God's word. This is a person who begins to voice their disapproval of God's word and his commands, and they begin to voice their lack of desire to follow God's word. And finally, this grows into a disillusioned heart of following God. This person's disillusionment, I can't get that word out, (laughs) or their discovery of following God is that they are delusioned in that, you know what, it just doesn't make much sense for me to follow God anymore because things aren't working out. You'll hear people say things like, well, I tried God, and it didn't work out for me. And this is from someone who comes to God because they want God to fix all their problems. They, just, they don't necessarily want God. God, I want you to fix this. Why are you doing this? I want, you to, I want you to fix my problems. And when God doesn't fix your problems, they become disillusioned. Well, I just I don't want to be a part of that anymore. So there's a sincere heart that questions God. God, Why? Why am I seeing this pain? Why am I seeing this suffering? And then there's a cynical heart that, that comes at God with, with a heart that doesn't seek him. Proverbs eight seventeen says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. You see, Habakkuk isn't cynical. He is concerned. He's praying and crying out for his nation Look at these words here in verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you make me see this iniquity, this this evil, this immorality? And why do you 
idly look at wrong. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contentment arise. Makes me ask, what, do we cry out in frustration over the sin in the world that we see? Or do we find it entertaining? There's a tendency that we have to become so immune to the sin and the iniquity and the wrong that is around us that we become more entertained by it than we do heartbroken by it. Do we have the same frustration when we look at our world? Verse 4 says, So the law is paralyzed. The word there means numb. And justice never goes forth. Are we concerned that God's law, his gospel, has grown numb in its effect of those around us? You see, we live in an area where there are churches on every other street corner. We live in an area where Jesus is a household name. We live in an area where most people understand who God is and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done on the cross. But we also live in an area where we see that many have grown numb to the truth of God. It's paralyzed. And my question is, do we look at it and do we cry out? When we look at a world and we watch the news each and every week, do we, do we cry out for God? How long? When we see terrorist attacks, school shootings, human sex trafficking, killing of innocent babies, or have we gone numb to all of these things? Can I pray for us? Father, awaken our hearts. Give us eyes to see as you see. Give us hearts of compassion. Father, when we look on the multitudes that are like sheep without a shepherd, that we would be heartbroken. And when we see suffering and evil and disease and the things of this world, that we would become so heartbroken that we would cry out to you, God. God, do something. That we would not become numb to your word. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When you're frustrated in your faith, rest assured God is at work. You can question him, but I want you to rest assured that God's at work. So it says there, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. The Lord's answer, look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that it, you would not believe if told. This is, what, this is what God says. Look around you. Stop looking at just yourself. When we face frustration, it's so easy to become nearsighted and to only look at our problem and look at what go, what's going on in our life. And God wants to remind us, look, I'm doing something so much bigger than what you see. If you will just look up and look at the nations, if you will look out and you will see the glory of God, you will see that I am at work all over the place right now and I am, I am working and I am completely in control. He says, look up, see the wonders and be astounded. Astounded! I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. Here's the good news. Here's the promise. God will respond to the cries of his people according to his purpose. God will answer according to his purpose. 
John 14, 12 through 13 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus talking, whoever believes in me will also do works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I love this because we have a tendency of praying all of our prayers and then ending in a certain way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It's like we tack that in because like as long as we say it in accordance to Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen, he will do it, right? That is not what that verse means. It means if you will pray according to his will, there's two types of prayers, his will, his will, and our will, right? I can either pray thy will be done or my will be done, and that's it. And he says, as long as we're praying thy will be done, you will see God work. You will see him answer prayers according to his purpose and his plan. We looked at this a couple of weeks back in James 4, 2 through 4. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. James talks to the church and he's like, look, you're praying, but you're praying only for you. And here's what, here's what God would say to Habakkuk. Look up. Look at the nations and be astounded. Look at the wondrous works of my hand. I am at work and you don't even know it. And even if I were to tell you what I'm doing, you wouldn't get it. You ever ever think about that? If God was to come and he was to say, here, I'm going to explain everything that's going on. I'm going to tell you every detail. I'm going to fully explain my love. I'm going to fully explain my mercy, my forgiveness, my justice, my wrath, my plan, my divine election, because I know you got questions about that and free will. I'm going to explain all of this to you, and I'm going to explain why there's diseases, why there's hurt, why there's sin, and I'm, going to, I'm just going to lay it all out. You wouldn't even understand if I told you. Because... Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. His ways, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We serve a very, very big God. And He can handle the questions, He can handle your your honesty. He can, he can handle you saying, God, why? How long? Why am I going through this? What is going on? And he will say, look up. And even if I told you, you wouldn't get it. I wanted to have an illustration of a box up here. And I wanted to have uh, different things that I pulled out that fit in my box. Things that I understand. And then as I tried to think of things that I could put in my box, I realized I don't really understand that much. And so it would have been a really bad illustration. And so I was like, there's not really a lot that I fully understand. And then I was like, I could pull out a picture of my family. And I'd be like, no, I don't fully understand my wife after this many years. Uh, so I can't do that. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to have this illustration that God never fits in my box. As much as I read scripture, there's always another scripture that I read and it doesn't quite fit with my theological framework. Oh, that's what God's doing. And then I read a, a verse about, you know, um, the prophet Samuel coming back from the dead by, by uh, a witch who brought, brought his spirit back, and he, and he spoke. Yeah, y'all don't know. Y'all need to look that up. That's in, that's in the Old Testament. Explain that, Pastor. I can't. I can't explain that. You see, God is so much higher. His ways are so much deeper. 
And even if he were to explain to us the why and the how long, we wouldn't get it. But we can rest assured that he's at work. He's always working for his purpose, for his plan, and for his glory. So when you're frustrated in your faith, trust that the evil you face is not greater than the glory of God. So this is what he says. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth, who seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up the earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. God is going to use the Babylonians as its instrument of righteous just, just judgment on Judah. Now let that sink in for just a second. God is actually in the process of allowing a sinful nation to come to power in order to discipline his people and to further his name among the nations. Does that fit in your box of God? God is using and allowing evil to come to power so that he can get the glory and show the world his greatness. Now, you know why? Because even if I told you, you wouldn't get it. God is always working for his glory, for his power and for his might to be known among the nations. And as we read, we know that one day King Nebuchadnezzar will bow, right? God's at work, and it's far bigger than you could ever imagine. And God's glory is always greater than the evil that we face. When my daughter was a baby, um, we took her for one of her well visits and we were at the well visit. They found a spot on the top of her head that was, uh, looked like melanoma, um, precancerous. And so we had to take her in, and, and they had to take the razor blade, and they had to scrape it off the top of her head. Now, there's two positions as a parent. There's the position of being the hero and waiting out in the, in the hallway. So when the kid comes out crying, you're there to just love and welcome them. That's the, that's the position my wife took. The other position is the parent that's the bad parent that gets to hold the kid down while someone else tortures them, right? That's the position that I took. It seemed to be that way quite often when it was time for shots or, or whatever. Um, so at this, at this point, these doctors are coming at my daughter, my helpless, defenseless little baby girl with a razor blade. And they're scraping away what they believe is cancerous on the top of her head, and I'm holding her legs down while other doctors hold her arms down. And she thinks, what evil is happening? And, you know, and the baby, the baby little girl, she looks up at you like, you're the dad, you're supposed to be saving me right now, and you're not saving her, right? And I, I could bend down and I could say, hey, look, even if I told you what I'm doing, you wouldn't get it. Even if I explain to you that this is a necessary pain for your future, 
you wouldn't get it. I think there's a lot of times where we look at the evil of this world, and I can't explain it. I can't explain why there's sex trafficking. I can't explain why there's disease. I can't explain why there's hurt and why there's pain and why there's suffering. I can't explain why people don't know the name of Jesus Christ. I I can't explain these things to you. But I know that whatever that evil is that this world is facing, there's a glory of God that's far greater. And I don't know what you're facing, but there's a glory of God that is far greater. It says this in verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Verse 8, they fly like an eagle swift to devour. Verse 9, they all come for violence. As great and as powerful as they were, their resume of power and evil is nothing compared to the glory of God. God lays out the fact that, man, these people are awful. They have violence on the mind, and they, they laugh at the face of other kings. But Babylon was nothing but a pawn in the plan of God for the redemption of the nations. So no matter what evil you're facing, the dread and the fear you have, the possible suffering and the swift defeat looming due to sin and evil, know this. The enemy's resume of evil, violence, fear, and death has nothing on God's redemptive plan for his people. That's good news. I know that it doesn't make the questions go away. It doesn't answer them. But it anchors us to the one who has all power and might. God, you're at work even when I don't see it. God, you're working for your goodness even when I don't know it. This is what Paul would say in Romans 8, 28 through 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Some of y'all have that on a coffee mug, I'm sure. But it doesn't mean all things are going to work out on earth. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good news. You see, when we're frustrated in our faith, we can cry out with difficult questions to God. And even if he was to tell us what's going on, we may not get it. But we can rest assured, no matter what evil we're facing, he's a good God who is working all things out for his glory 
And we know that because he gave up his very own son, Jesus Christ, that he would be the firstborn of the resurrection so that we could have life after death. He's working all things out for those who love him. This is good news. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Is there suffering and evil in this world? Yes. Will we still have to suffer and go through difficulties? Yes. Will we always know why or how long? No. Did Jesus have to suffer because of sin? Yes. God did not spare him. No evil can thwart the glory of God and his redemptive plan for his people. Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, Matthew 27, 46, he asked God a very sincere question. And it was about the ninth hour, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Elihi, Elihi, lema sabathami. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even the Son of God asked difficult questions. Even if I told you, you wouldn't get it. Because my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So look up. And look at the nations, because God is at work. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons each week.